to really be vulnerable, you have to let people know that that you struggle with things and that you're not doing okay sometimes. And it's not something that we should necessarily be announcing on social media all the time, but sometimes it's just a conversation, a private conversation between you and a loved one. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real conversations that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. And uh, we're doing something special. This episode is part of a three-part series we are doing on mental health and well-being, featuring three extraordinary mental health experts. Uh, Dwayne France, who is a combat veteran, a U.S. combat veteran, a veteran turned mental health counselor and podcaster. And I was lucky enough to be on the 100th episode of his podcast, a big honor for me. The incredible Phil Tool who's the legendary psychotherapist who became famous as the performance coach who saved Metallica. And our guest, the voice you heard off the top, the mega popular therapist, writer, and speaker, Amy Morin. As usual, we're sponsored by the good folks at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today and schedule a free growth review with an expert in your industry at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. Now, Amy is one of uh, my favorite guests. Uh, She's been with us multiple times, and I'm very stoked about that. We have a powerful conversation that I think you're going to enjoy about how women can be super successful, why self-doubt can be a good thing, actually, the power of vulnerability, and a ton more. Go to lockhead.com to check out the show notes and key takeaways for this episode and to find Amy and her awesome new book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. Now, hey-ho, let's go. become mentally stronger doesn't mean you have to act like men it just means you can do things differently and to be a mentally strong woman isn't about copying men and being more aggressive or uh, doing the same things that men do and in a way to mimic them but instead blaze your own trail go on your own path and it's okay to be a mentally strong woman who doesn't act like a mentally strong man yeah the most legendary women i know act like themselves Right, (laughs) right. And some of us have, you know, more masculine traits and some of us have more feminine traits or whatever, but yeah. So I I love the list. It's an awesome list. Um, I'm not sure. Is there there a place where you want to start? Because there's a couple things that sort of jumped right out at me, but is there a place on the list you'd like to start? I'm I'm happy to start wherever you, whatever jumped out at you. I want to know what stood out to you. Uh, number nine really st- stands out. They don't allow others to limit their potential. Yeah. And, you know, in my research for the book, the more I studied about how women react to rejection and criticism, it's a little different than men. Women tend to treat rejection and criticism as if it's the same thing. So when a woman gets criticized, she often feels like she's re- rejected. And so I just wanted to highlight that and to know, okay, just because somebody said you couldn't do something, whether you were 12 12 years old and your teacher said you were never going to amount to anything, or you had a boss who said you weren't cut out to do this, you don't have to let that stop you in your tracks. And a lot of the research says women are much more likely to give up after they experience that kind of feedback from someone. So I just wanted to write this chapter all about how do you not let somebody limit your potential in life? How do you keep going even if people don't believe in you? And you said something really uh, interesting that I think may be a very powerful distinction uh, between rejection and criticism. And it it seems like, myself included, I can um, process um, criticism from an emotional place because it it does make us sometimes feel like we're being rejected. And so how do we get good at sort of distinguishing between the two and then once we understand which of it it is rejection or criticism uh how how we deal with it effectively i think one of the most important things is to uh, take criticism where it's coming from to really separate people who are jealous of you or people who maybe have no uh, stake in your game who are criticizing it's easy for people to criticize you you put a social media image out there and somebody says that's stupid or you're ugly well, if it's a total stranger, just move forward. 
But to know that sometimes uh, studies will show that people, when they criticize you, they're actually talking about themselves more times than not. So when somebody who doesn't feel good about themselves criticizes you, they're going to say the things that actually describe how they feel about themselves. And I tell the story of a woman who came into my office and she was verbally and emotionally abused by her father for most of her life. And those words really stuck in her head I, as an adult, even though he hadn't said these things to her for years, she just couldn't get past it. And when we talked about, well, how did your father feel about himself? The list that came out of her mouth was pretty identical to the exact words he used when he would talk to her. You're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. You're a bad person. All of those sorts of things. So I think when you get feedback from someone, it's important to know why is this person giving me feedback and might it say more about them than it does about me? You know, if it's your boss giving you feedback about how you could do your job better, absolutely, that could be helpful feedback. Or if your spouse is talking to you about something that they noticed, probably makes sense to listen. But if it's somebody who you have this contentious relationship with anyway, somebody you don't know, you can just tune it out and say, that's fine. I don't have to listen to that. Or that's just one person's opinion. If you get rejected for a job, it doesn't mean you weren't ever meant to do that. It just means that one person's opinion is that you weren't the right person for this one position. You just proved how awesome the Big Lebowski is. If you remember that there's a quote in the movie where um, the, uh, the dude says something like, yeah, man, that's just like your opinion, man. Absolutely. Right. But we get so stuck in thinking that somebody else's word is truth. And so and even right down to the, our own language that we use. And if we say, gosh, that movie was terrible versus I didn't like that movie. There's a big difference in that judgmental language. And yet we let other people do that to us when somebody says, you're not going to have this promotion. You can't have that. We think, oh, that means I'm not good enough. No, it's just that one person's opinion that you weren't meant to have that position. It doesn't mean you aren't good enough. Yeah. Now, the, another one in no particular order. I mean, you know me well enough now. I like to jump around. Um, uh, number 11, they don't stay silent. Yeah, this one was probably the most controversial one I put in the book because, of course, at the time when Time Magazine named the Silence Breakers as the person of the year and as the Me Too movement was unfolding, there's so much conversation about not staying silent when it comes to abuse or harassment or sexual assault. And I wanted to make it clear that if you had something like that that happened to you and you didn't speak out, I'm not saying that you're mentally weak in any way, shape or form but that harboring deep secrets does drain your mental strength. So maybe you decide not to go to the authorities and people have really legitimate reasons for not doing that. But I just don't want people to feel like they have to though harbor that deep, dark secret and keep it all to themselves. Tell somebody, whether you tell a friend, you tell a therapist, you find a support group, just make sure that you aren't staying silent about the things that have happened to you. But this chapter also isn't just about traumatic things. I wanted to make it clear that women tend to not get nearly as much airtime as men in business meetings or in social circles. If you look around and you think, all right, if maybe a handful of couples go out to dinner together, just sit back and notice the conversation. And I almost guarantee you that you'll notice the men dominate the conversation. Women are more likely to talk if they're kind of off in the corner and it's just a couple of women. But if it's a bigger group of people, men almost always get much more airtime than the women do. I've often, you know, I was going to ask you about that and, and we can go back to Me Too in a sec if you, if you like. I, and I do have some things there that I'm curious to get your uh, sense of. But um, in a business context, I, I, even today, I, I, I remark at, you know, particularly bigger meetings, not maybe two or three people, but, you know, 10 or 12 people, a bigger meeting. Um, it often feels, not always, of course, but that the women do speak less than um, the men, particularly in a bigger setting. In a smaller setting, I don't notice it as much, but you, you'll tell me. But what's going on there when women don't participate, um, you know, at the same level of men, particularly in, in a larger uh, meeting setting? We know that women often want to be invited. So if a boss says, turns to a woman and says, what do you think about this? More times than not, she's happy to share her opinion. She often has opinions. She's got thoughts, ideas. But unless she's specifically invited, a lot of women just don't feel as though they, they can interrupt, that they can speak up, that they can share their ideas, that their ideas aren't as good. And it's sort of this habit that we get into. And I think it's subtle. 
from a young age, if you're in mixed company and you see that men always speak more, I think it's just something that a lot of women learned that women aren't supposed to speak up as much and sort of ingrained in our culture. And I think we don't even notice it a lot of times. When I look back at you know college classes I was in or jobs that I've had where there were big meetings and I think, gosh, you know, at the time I probably didn't notice it as much. But once you do notice it, you can't unnotice it. And you think it's everywhere that women often don't get as much airtime. And sometimes people will say, well, it's because women are just more precise with their words, that they can get their point across in fewer words, whereas men tend to go on and on. But studies will say that's not the case. It's that women can be quite persuasive, but that, uh, and they have great ideas. It's just that they're not sharing them as much. And so, you know, I've never been somebody that was uh, known for uh, shutting up for extended periods <laughs> of time. <laughs> and uh, even as a young person in, in business, um, you know, I would speak up, I would uh, interrupt um, hopefully not overly disrespectfully, but if I wanted to say something, I fucking said it. And so, um, is that, is that just not as true for women? What's sort of underneath why, uh, women, women are more prone to being asked as opposed to speaking up? I think there's a lot of reasons. I think one is when women are more aggressive, they often get punished for it. If women get emotional in a meeting, they're more likely to be called crazy. Whereas, we know men, male leaders are often thought of as more authoritative, or if a woman gets angry, we say she's over-emotional. When a man gets angry, people think, gosh, he, he really is passionate about this. And so I think that's one big difference is that we're judged more harshly. Uh, and when we talk about uh, women, you know, you often hear things like, oh, she never shuts up or she can't stop whining. A lot of those sort of just, again, ingrained in our culture that women shouldn't speak up. And I tell this story, and I find it horrifying that a school hired this football player who got up there and gave a speech who said, you know, girls are supposed to be silent. Well, this same NFL player has been charged with sexual assault several times. And a school's hire, a public school district's hiring him to be a public speaker for small children. And right. What so is I, this, man? What are we talking about here? <laughs> exactly, right? And, you know, part of his speech was, you know, boys are supposed to be strong. They're supposed to speak up and girls are supposed to be silent. And just the thought of that makes my skin crawl because I think it is just so deeply ingrained. And we know when we looked at teachers in classrooms, I think teachers don't mean to do it, but it's just something that they're used to, that they call on boys more often. They make eye contact with boys more. They encourage boys to keep sharing their ideas. They're less likely to get boys in trouble when they are talking during class or if they speak out of turn. We have this sort of boys will be boys mentality. And I think it just kind of carries through. And so that by the time we're adults, it's something that we've learned, but it's been so subtle over time that we don't necessarily notice it. So look, and this may be terrible advice, so you're going to tell me. I have often thought, in this topic with women in a business context you know my advice to and look what do i know but my advice to women is always fuck all that who cares if they're going to think you're a bitch or you're pushy or you're this or you're that? all the sort of the whatever labels get put on women that don't necessarily be put on men or get, get put on men speak up and and even further so what if they think you're a bitch but I've heard some women say, no, we, we need to be sensitive to this and, and so forth. And so I guess, where do you come out on this? How do I, if I'm, if I'm a woman, how do I speak up? How do I be assertive? How do I get my ideas across? How do I not wait to be called upon? But if I am worried, or maybe I should or shouldn't, you'll tell me, uh, should I be worried about being called a bitch or some other term? You know, I think, I think it's, a healthy concern to have because there is you get punished in the workplace sometimes or you don't get promoted or uh, you won't be taken as seriously in some context so it absolutely can backfire and hurt you of course the best case scenario is if we get business leaders involved so your supervisor the manager that business leaders know okay if i specifically ask the women in the group what do you think about this we can change the way that we run meetings so you call them out a few times to say hey what do you think about this they share their idea maybe the next Next meeting, they're more likely to share it without you having to call on them. Uh, and, you know, I think just for managers and business leaders to notice, okay, how, do, how are our meetings run? Are we just taking all the ideas from men and running with them without actually asking the women? How do we get women to participate more? I think just having that understanding is the first step in realizing, okay, this is what's going on and, and how do we 
And we're missing out on all of these ideas that we could be getting from the women unless we encourage them to participate. So that's clearly the message you want men to get is that, hey, listen, be aware of this phenomena. And if the gals in, in a meeting or on your team or whatever it is aren't participating at a sort of similar plus or minus rate as the guys, open a door for them. Absolutely. I think sometimes that's all it takes is open that door and all of a sudden you can change the entire culture of the company just by making it clear we value your opinion and we want to hear your ideas. And if I'm a gal who wants to, nobody's opening the door in the meeting for me, so I want to kick it open, but maybe I want to be more sensitive than uh, I would be as a woman, <laughs> which is to kick the door open and punch everybody in the face and start talking. But let's say I wanted to open my own door here and do it a little bit more subtly. Um, how might I do that in a meeting? Uh, you know, so I think you could behind the scenes, talk to a manager, talk to whoever runs the meeting and just say, you know what I notice? There's four or five men in here who dominate the conversation. And I wonder if we're missing out on a lot of ideas. What could we do to make it more inviting so that the women could speak up too? Strike up a conversation like that if you feel like that's a, an option. Then you can also say, make it a goal. All right, I'm going to speak up once per meeting. When you walk into that meeting, you just already have it planned that you're going to do it at least once. Maybe you do become a trailblazer who speaks up, and maybe that will help encourage other women, too, if you start modeling how to speak up, how to share your ideas, and that you're willing to get your point across. Yeah. The other one I'm curious in this regard is it seems to me that some gals are less likely to, you know, what I would call mix it up. And I'll give you a very specific. I had a conversation a while ago with a successful female entrepreneur, CEO, venture-backed in Silicon Valley. I mean, a non-trivial kind of a gal working on some very serious stuff. And she had had this guy in the beginning of her business that was working with her. And he stole the idea for the company, left, started his own company that was a total knockoff of her company, and actually got it venture-backed. And so now this guy and his company come up in conversations because they're a competitor and uh, she shared with me in confidence, Amy, that, you know, she generally says fairly nice things about this guy. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, I was trying to take the high road. And I said to her, well, I think the high road is the truth. And if I were in your shoes and this guy come, came up, I would say, yeah, you want to know about that guy? He was with us in the beginning of our company. He took the idea, not his idea, ripped it off, and is now trying to compete with himself with us. And I think he's an asshole. And and she was like, she was floored in that I said, she said she was trying to take the high road and essentially saying nice things about the guy. When I said the truth is the high road. And so is that a common thing or does that blow anything open for you? Well, you know, yeah, I talk a bit of, in the book about uh, women and breaking the rules and sort of uh, the way that we're conditioned to be polite and that we're supposed to be well-mannered, that we get rewarded more for being well-mannered and speaking more positively about people. So I'm not surprised by that. And I agree with you that you don't have to pretend that a, a bad person is an awesome human being if they're not. Um, but I think that is part of a, a part of this whole conversation is that women are often told, you know, to be polite. You don't want to come across like you're jealous or mean spirited or anything like that. And, you know, in the chapter where I talk about apologizing as well um, and breaking the rules that women tend to view small offenses as a much bigger deal than men do. So when they've done studies on things to say, if you called your friend in the middle of the night and woke them up, how big of a deal would that be? Most of the men were like, not a big deal at all. Whereas the women are like, oh, I'd feel horrible. That'd be awful. And so that's why we know why one of the reasons why women apologize more than men. And so I think going back to your example, you know, speaking ill of somebody for a lot of women is like a horrible offense. Even if they did something terrible to you, it seems like it's poor taste to go around now talking about that person in a bad way, even if it's the truth. But uh, and so I think there is that tendency sometimes to be too overprotective of people or to not set clear enough boundaries or to allow ourselves to be treated poorly, even in light of somebody showing us who they are through their behavior. Yeah. Interesting. Now, maybe let's touch on Me Too because Me Too came about as your um, uh, renown was was growing. And uh, clearly you're viewed today as a, a as a thought leader 
on a wide ranging set of things, but per particularly things that do r pertain to women. And so, um, kind of, what's your take on Me Too, and how do you think it should impact the way women conduct themselves, both in business and or just in life? Well, sort of watching it unfold as so many women came forward, I think it uh, definitely opened a lot of our eyes about exactly how widespread this issue is. But one of the, as I was interviewing women for the book, one of the biggest things I kept hearing from them is, well, something happened to me, but I don't feel like I'm worthy of talking about it. It's not as bad as other people's. And, you know, just I'm so sad to hear that, that people think that, you know, if I'm, unless my story was as bad as everybody else's, I can't talk about it because I think, you know, even if your incident wasn't quite as severe as somebody else's or you don't think it is, that it's still not okay. And, you know, a big thing that I talked about in the book too that I think probably most women have experienced and most men that I know haven't was just catcalling. When you walk down the street and men are whistling and saying things about your appearance, just how uncomfortable that is. And because I talked to a lot of men about this book and they said, you know, I don't know why you made this book for women. It's a lot like uh, men's experiences too. And I absolutely agree. And I'm so glad so many men are finding stuff from this book. But I wanted to highlight that women do have some different experiences than men do. And that's one of them. I haven't run into a single man who says, you know, when I walk down the street, women are whistling at me and saying things about my appearance. But I think almost every woman has experienced that at one time or another. And and so many men who have come forward and said to me, I actually thought that that was flattering. And or I thought that's, you know, how do you approach an attractive woman? You just blurt something out from across the street. And so I'm hoping that one of the big things from the Me Too movement is, is we'll just learn more about this stuff and that we'll become more aware of objectifying women and saying grotesque things isn't appropriate. Well, and Jerry Seinfeld has this old bit about this that is pee your pants funny. Uh, it's in the context of catcalling and honking in particular. Uh-huh. Yep. And he does the build up about, you know, the gal on the street and the guy honking. And, but that sort of the punchline of the whole story is when a man is honking at a woman, this is a man who has run out of ideas. <laughs> exactly. We have no idea how to approach you. He doesn't say this, but there is no man in the history of men whoever honked at a woman and had that woman say, oh, hey, thanks for honking at me. Can I jump in the car and have sex with you immediately now? Like, that's never happened, ever. Right, right. And same thing with cat calls. Like, and so I guess I, I don't even understand why the fuck do men do cat calls? What is that? You know, I had somebody who came to me just recently and he said, you know, Amy, I used to do this. I'd yell out the window and he said, and then one day I got to the stoplight and the, the women that I had just yelled at sort of caught up to me. And then I was in panic because I thought, what if they come up to the window? I don't have anything to say to them. Obviously, they didn't approach him because he said, you know, it wasn't particularly something they were interested in after he was yelling out the window. But he said, you know, I don't know. I just thought that that's what you did when you saw an attractive woman. And so my hope is we'll start to teach young men and boys much better behavior and that as women will be less tolerant some of the women i interviewed said i'm flattered by it there was a few of them that said that like gosh i don't mind it but the vast majority of women i spoke to said you know i dress differently i put on a thick jacket when i'm walking down the road or if i have to wear a dress to the office uh i don't take public transportation that day. And I think how horrible that so many women feel like they have to change their behavior, change their route to work because that this is happening. And for the women that have sort of come to accept it, I don't think that they, um, they've been given the tools or the self-worth to know that men yelling at you disgusting things from across the street shouldn't be flattering. Amen, hallelujah, sister. And I look, I, of course <laughs> I have no experience being a woman, but as a man, like, what are you doing? This, this, this doesn't lead to anything you might want it to lead to. Like, you're not going to go out for beers after you yell this stuff at her. I just, as, as a man, I've never understood it because it's completely ineffective if what you're trying to do is meet an attractive lady. This is, there's no attractive woman I've ever met who says, this is the way I met my husband. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, and then, you know, to your point, Look, uh, sure, uh, uh, is it possible there are outlying cases? But the vast majority of us dudes, we have no sort of concept of walking down the street and having somebody yell at us about our behind or something. Right. 
And so maybe we need to teach younger men social skills, just very basic social skills that you don't yell things out the window. If you see an attractive woman and you want to strike up a conversation, how do you do it appropriately? How do you do it in a way that's not offensive? And I think over the years, we talk about these things like the gender pay gap and discrimination, but yet on a very basic level, we're missing out on some things that we just need to be teaching kids from a young age. Yeah, or maybe they need a mother like my mother, Jackie, because she would have crushed me for doing anything. She <laughs> taught my ass to be a little gentleman. You open the uh -huh. door and ladies first and, 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 and. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think just more of that about, you know, how do you just basic respect? How do you be respectful of other people, man or woman? Now, on, on Me Too, I've talked to a lot of guys about this and a lot of gals as well. And one of the reoccurring themes, men and women, that I hear is um, people in general were surprised to hear, and, and you made a little bit of a comment about this, Amy, how widespread this is. That it, it, it yeah. seems like it's every, or at least it was everywhere. I don't, I don't know how how much better we're getting. Maybe you'll tell me. Um, but it seemed remarkable to me that so many women uh, in a work context had had some kind of you know, overtly negative uh, kind of sexist kind of experience. Yeah, I, I think most of us, it was alarming. And to just hear stories about everybody from um, entry-level workers to the celebrities that we heard from who had these stories of just disgusting things that they endured and had to go through and how, how often we still judge the, these women of, you know, the, when people came forward against Bill Cosby, it was, why didn't you tell somebody sooner? Or when you listen to some of the media interviews, it's still as if the woman who's coming forward is being put on trial herself and her character comes into question and so I think we're making progress. I think we have a long way to go, but my hope is that the Me Too movement just sheds some light on exactly um, how, how big of a problem this is and how often we still blame the victim and how unsafe it's been for people to come forward. But hopefully moving forward, that will start to change and more women will feel comfortable talking about this. Yeah, awesome. Amen, hallelujah. Uh, number seven, they don't fear breaking the rules. Why, why did that make it into the book? Well, I found so many, again, so much about that's emphasized about women for compliance and being polite. And right down to studies about kids that in America, especially teachers give the boys will be boys mentality. Uh, still really quite prevalent that boys, when they break the rules, the teachers shrug it off. If a girl commits the same behavior, it's this huge offense. Uh, but we find in a lot of other cultures, they, do, they don't do that, and the boys are much better behaved. No surprise. But in talking about women in particular and breaking the rules, I just wanted to outline how unless we do something different sometimes, things always stay the same. So one of my favorite stories from that chapter is about Catherine Switzer, the marathon runner. And this wasn't that long ago. In the late 1960s, we thought women couldn't run a marathon. We thought they were physically incapable of running 26 miles and that if they tried, something horrible would happen. And I don't know what, but we just it just never occurred to anybody that a woman could run a marathon. And so whenever there were marathons, it was all men who signed up. Well, she had been training and running and she had a coach and she just decided, I'm going to sign up for this marathon. She didn't ask for permission. She just did it. So she's out there running the marathon and the people who are in charge of the marathon physically try to block her from finishing the race as if somehow pushing her down to the ground was a good idea and that that would somehow prevent her from, I don't know, self-destructing at the 25th mile or something. And so anyway, she finishes the race. There's all this outrage from people about what were you trying to prove? Why did you do this? She got hate mail from people who said, you know, women can't do this and why would you? And she endured that for a long time, but because she was the first woman to prove that women can in fact run marathons, eventually the rules changed and women were allowed to run marathons. In fact, she just ran the Boston Marathon again not too long ago and they How retired her. Now, do you know? Ah, oh, so I guess she was in college in the late 60s. So where would that put her? Well, you're asking me to do math. Um... Right. I think that would put her in her late 50s, 60s. I think it would make her a little older than that, probably. If she was 20 in 1960. 1968-ish. 
Oh, okay. So if she was in college, yeah, she would be in her 60s, maybe early 70s. Probably, okay. Yeah, early to mid 60s, or mid to late 60s, I think. Right. And so they just, That's just decided. Not that long ago. <laughs> isn't that amazing? When I was reading that, I thought, gosh, I wasn't alive right then, but it wasn't that long after. And I thought, you know, my, my parents were teenagers during that time and yet that's what we still believed and, well, and to put a fine point on it I, I, do you follow endurance sports at all amy i do a little bit yeah have you seen it I, I don't know all their names and stuff but it's starting to emerge that in these mega races these hundred pluses and these multi-days and you know these things at like 200 miles and you know these huge trail runs and all this stuff the winners are women Right. There's now a body of evidence emerging, and again, I'm no expert, but that that in particularly in endurance sports, there's something actually uh, women have an advantage. That's the emerging sort of uh, thesis as these women beat these guys in these 200 mile trail runs and all this stuff. And isn't that amazing? So you take 40 or 50 years ago, we thought women couldn't run a marathon. And then we come to the point where we think, oh, gosh, not only can they finish a marathon, but when it comes to these ultra endurance races, a lot of women can actually finish them, whereas men struggle to, to complete them. Yeah. And I've spent you know a lot of time in the backcountry skiing or hiking and, and so forth with gals. And um, I don't want to be sexualist, but I think in general, a, a woman who is reasonably skilled and prepared in that kind of environment with a man who's reasonably skilled in that kind of environment, I'd take the woman. Women in the backcountry are awesome <laughs> and tough as shit. Right, right. And I, I think a lot of people would say that too, that I think that uh, different skill set, different things, you know, women maybe aren't ever going to bench press as much as a, as a man. But on the other hand, they've got lots of other skills that come in handy for, for certain things. And so... For this chapter, I just really wanted to highlight, sometimes you don't need to ask permission. You don't need to wait until people tell you you can do something. Sometimes you just got to break the rules, forge ahead, and, and know that there's going to be consequences when you're the trailblazer who says, I'm going to do this anyway. But um, that's the only way we're going to create change. Now, just because it's been in the news recently, I don't know if you saw this. Did you hear about there's this uh, uh, gal wrestler at a high school named Angel Rios? And apparently she's very, very good. And there was a wrestling match recently where she was going to go up. You know, most of who she wrestles against are guys. And, she, and this guy decided to, uh, it was a state tournament. Colorado Springs wrestler made history when he knocked himself out of the state tournament rather than wrestle a girl. And he said his point of view was, hey, listen, um, I don't have anything against her. I think she's great, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, wrestling is very aggressive. It's obviously incredibly physically you're, you're rolling around on top of each other. Um, I just don't want to be in that situation with a girl. And so I'm opting out. And uh, what do you think when things like that happen? Interesting. Well, you know, sports in general fascinate me when it comes to boys and girls because I don't I don't know what the answer is. But if you look at something like, you know, when I've talked to dads who say my daughter wants to play football, do I let her play? Well, again, it's a fact that most of the girls are going to be smaller than the boys and that they're uh, not as physically strong as the, as the boys on a high school team. Uh, but at the same time, girls have plenty of skills. They can do those certain things. So, you know, I don't fault the wrestler for saying I'm not going to wrestle against a girl if you're not comfortable because things are going to happen. You're probably going to be groping one another on the mat if that's not your thing, by all means. Um, but I applaud this girl for saying I'm going to I'm going to do this. And it's not a traditional sport for girls, but I'm going to do it anyway. So good for her. Yeah. One of the things I struggle with in with high school sports or middle school sports is the amount of money schools spend on boys sports as compared to girls sports. And it's through the roof for boys. And so many girls teams end up, you know, playing, um, you know, on the fields that are in, in the worst shape or they don't get money for uniforms. And yet most of us have tolerated this for years. And I think, how do you explain that to your daughter someday that you had to wear the old uniforms from 1975 while the boys had new ones or your sports got, you know, pennies on the dollar compared to what the boys sports got. So and my hope hell, is what's up with title nine was supposed to address this. Right. But I'm not seeing a big, a big change in this. I still see so many girls sports teams who just don't get the same respect that the boys sports teams do. Interesting. And just to circle back to the female wrestler, 
and I'll be curious to get your reaction. What you th you can tell me what you th think of how I have handled this. So I'm somebody who loves martial arts, and I train on a fairly regular basis. And um, th this is quite a while ago now. There was a gal that I trained with for a little while, maybe uh, three months or so, and she was training to become a professional mixed martial arts fighter. And uh, she asked me if I would spar with her. And I said yes. And so, and in, and in spar, the way we sort of spar is not, you know, some people spar like it's a fight. Um, and we don't spar that way. But we, we try to make it simulate the real environment as much as possible. And, and obviously, you don't really want to hurt your opponent. Uh, in this case, you know, she was training to be a professional. I was much bigger than her. She was probably about 140 pounds. I'm about 195 pounds, um, you know, and I'm obviously a guy and she's a gal. And so I agreed to spar with her and I sparred her. Uh, now, I didn't hit her with everything I have or and she didn't hit me with everything she had, but I made the decision that she wanted to do this. And so I said, yes. And so what do you think about, you know, this is this is boxing, kickboxing, much bigger guy on, on a gal. You know, I think if both parties are game, then absolutely. Just like I think if this, back to the wrestler story, if the female is willing and the male isn't, then all the more power to you. You don't have to wrestle together. But if both people are saying, let's let's do this, why not, right? That That's what I think. And I also, um, from a self-defense perspective, I think it's really important for women to train with men. Because the reality is, if you're if you're somebody who's interested in, in um, self-defense, and you and I are in a class together, the likelihood that you get attacked by someone who looks like me versus someone who looks like you is is, is a lot higher than it's going to be somebody like me. And so, if, right. if you're learning how to, for example, one of the things we teach women is, uh, an attacker comes at you from behind and picks you up. What do you do? Because once you're in the air, if you stay in the air, that means you're going in the trunk. And once you're in the trunk, it's really, really, really bad, right? And so there's a set of things you can do, even if the attacker picks you up. But there's things you can do to stop them from picking you up. And even if you get in the air, there are things you can do to get them to drop you and get safe. Well, it's better for you and your training if you and I train that together. Sure. Um, yeah, that and, makes sense. And so it's, I, I don't know, this is an interesting one for me. I've, I've, I've chosen to land where you land, which is if both parties agree, then they should do it. And, you know, look, I always try to be a super respectful guy and, and, and train in a super respectful way, male or female. It is an intimate thing you're doing when you do this kind of training, when it, whether it's two guys or guy and a gal or whatever, whatever the mix is. Um, but that's what you're signing up to do. You didn't sign up to take a croquet class. Right. Right. Yep, that makes sense to me too. Now, another one I'm curious uh, to get your feedback on, and, and that's happened in my world uh, fairly recently. Um, there was somebody on Cora asked a question: um, If a male employee who worked for you came to you and said he refused to meet with a female coworker because he's married, and meeting one on one with a female coworker, in his opinion, is immoral. What would you say to that male coworker? Oh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? <laughs> I thought it was a fascinating question, and I was I was uh, chomping to to answer it because <laughs> I had a very it was very clear to me. You know, I think it again. I think it depends if you because uh, I think sometimes work issues people get in trouble. They go on business trips with their coworkers, and it's just the two of them, and things happen. Because um, when you think about it, you spend more time sometimes with your coworkers than you do with your spouse. Um, so I think it's important to be mindful of that, to have healthy boundaries. But I think if you are putting up the walls that say, I can't ever meet with a woman by myself, um, that's going to be a problem in the office, just even from a practical standpoint of how are you, how are we going to police this uh, to what's the extent that you can't meet with a woman if you're in a conference room and it's just the two of you and there's a, a glass wall, is that okay? Or you just can't meet in your office? I really want to, I guess, be curious of like, what's the extent of this? I can't meet with I a woman by myself. Laura Burko would be better, Amy. <laughs> like, where, where, well, where does right. this go? <laughs> right. And I can't imagine too many offices where that would even be practical that you could say, 
and then what you have to have a chaperone there's going to be a third person that's going to enter the room with you every time you're going to meet um it seems like it would be a really difficult thing to do to do <laughs> yeah and uh, i mean i went you're much uh, gentler about it i was very clear um meeting one-on-one -on -one with uh, colleagues is a condition for employment and so you either do that or you're fired that's my point of view unless there's some very special circumstance which sometimes can be the case or whatever fair enough but barring some edge case meeting with people whether it's customers or colleagues or whatever is a requirement the other thing in my point of view amy is if a uh, per somebody who worked for me came to me and said hey listen um i can't meet with steve in accounting because he's in a wheelchair and um meeting with people one-on-one -on -one in wheelchairs is immoral to me or he's fill in the blank different culture fill in the blank different sexual persuasion yeah. whatever difference you want to talk about if it was anything other than imagine somebody came to you and said well i can't meet with so-and-so because they're this ethnic background or their skin color is different than mine. you'd be like what are you fucking talking about steve right and so I took it to that place. Yeah, and I, I think those are all really good points because, um, and I think maybe people just need more, again, it goes back to the education issue on how do you um, protect yourself? How do you make sure that everybody's safe? How do you not engage in conversations that are inappropriate? What do you do if you start to feel like a conversation's crossing the line, if you start to feel uncomfortable with somebody? right down to somebody's emailing you jokes that cause you to feel uncomfortable. I think there just seems to be more conversations about that kind of stuff. And how do you, how do you handle it? What is your HR department going to do? What's the, what are the warning signs? Um, so that people feel like, Oh, okay, I can, I can do this. Um, boy. Yeah. I'll just be really curious what this person's, do you know what his concern was? Did he say? Uh, he, he didn't say, I don't know. It's just like, Hey, listen, um, just cause she's female doesn't mean like something like I have traveled on business trips with just myself and one other gal many times. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I was a three time CMO and for whatever reason in, in the tech industry, um, gals gravitate generally more to marketing and HR than they do to, so, um, finance and sales and engineering. It's an oversimplification. It's not always true, blah, blah. But, you know, as a percentage, in marketing, we had a much higher percentage of, of gals in marketing than, for example, we did in, in R&D. And so I always had women all over the place working with me. And as a result, you end up traveling with them. And sometimes you're on a press tour and the press person is a female person and I'm a male person and we're on tour for a week and a half or something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I just, it, it's asinine. Yes, look, I'm not an idiot. I understand things happen. But it's asinine to, ha in my opinion, for that to be the first place that you go. Just because you're female and I'm male doesn't mean we have to get down. Right. And that like, would be my question. You know, did this man who asked that question think, you know, he was going to be blamed for something? Did he think he was going to cross the line? Did he worry that they'd engage in some sort of emotional affair? Did he think he'd be accused of harassment? So again, I think this goes back to the education thing. If you conduct yourself in an appropriate manner, um, and if something come the red flag comes up or you have a concern, what do you do about it? But that you don't need to say you can't be alone in a in a room with a certain kind of person. It's definitely not okay in today's world. Yeah. Now the other one I wanted to touch on with you is um, self doubt. And self-doubt is something all of us have, male or female. But wh why did you think it was an important thing to underscore in your new book? Um, you know, when I was really just doing the research on the self-doubt that women experience, and one of the issues came into play is, of course, culture. And so, for example, advertisements for beauty products, uh, you know, that always stress to women, if you wear this item or you buy this thing, then you'll finally be good enough. And I know men get bombarded with that too, but the um, overwhelming research on the the stress that women feel about looking good, the extra pressure to to do all these extra things in life, and then the questions that we have about am I good enough? And kind of goes back to the first chapter too about not comparing ourselves to other people. That we found when if a man looks at a say a muscle magazine of other men 
men are more likely to think, gosh, I could be like that someday. A woman picks, picks up a fitness magazine or she's scrolling through Instagram at fitness model. She's more likely to think, oh, I'll never be like that. And so I think it's just really important as women to realize, well, how does our self-doubt stop us? And that self-doubt doesn't have to be a bad thing. Women are more likely to believe their self-doubt. So if they're applying for a promotion and they have a, a inkling of self-doubt, they're less likely to say, well, this is my intuition, or I shouldn't apply until I'm 100% confident, or I should take this as a sign that everybody else is more confident than I am, and then not try. But studies will show self-doubt isn't a bad thing. If you ask students, how are you going to do on that test? The ones who say I'm going to ace it definitely are likely to do worse than the ones who say I'm not really sure. And that's because they've turned their self-doubt into effort. They say I'm going to study harder because I'm not sure how I'm going to do on that test. So just embrace a little self-doubt and, and go for it anyway. You know, it's, I'm, I'm being reminded of something. I, I want to say the book might have actually been called Mentally Tough. Is there a book about sports? Um psychology called mentally tough that let me just look at this quickly does that ring any bells i don't know it doesn't but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist uh, anyway it was a book about that i i may have the title wrong um uh, yeah no this is it it's called mentally tough by dr jim uh lair i think is how you pronounce his last name sports psychologist yeah so i am remembering it right the principles of winning at sports one of the things he says in this book, Amy, that's fascinating is he talks about elite athletes and um, how in those moments of truth, they actually warp reality to keep them on their edge. And an example that he gave was he said Martina Navratilova, if she was, say, you know, far ahead and, and getting close to winning the match at a point where some some athletes might sort of rest or sort of already be drinking the champagne kind of thing, you know, feeling like they had it in the, in the bag. To keep that edge, she would turn reality and convince herself that she had to fight to come from behind or she was going to lose the match to keep her intensity level up. And so as you're saying what you're saying, I'm sort of reminded of that, which is, you know, there are things that, that 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 can be very positive about sort of mentally disadvantaging yourself in that way is that is that where you were coming from yeah that's definitely it that i think people don't recognize how dangerous confidence can be and that being completely confident that it's all going to work out or that there's no problem leads to some really poor decisions sometimes you know people you wouldn't enter into a get rich quick scheme unless you were confident that nothing was going to go wrong or you know a lot of the mistakes we make are because we're overconfident about our abilities and we underestimate how tough the challenge is going to be having a little self-doubt means i have to put in more effort i have to study for this i have to prepare i have to sharpen my skills and it keeps you on your toes so i'm not surprised by that and i think that's a, a great example of how to use it to your advantage you know i'm also reminded as you talk uh we were lucky enough to have uh golden state warriors mvp champion um uh, andre Iguodala on the podcast and um if you were a member of the golden state warriors you could imagine that they they would be very cocky and they would roll in and say hey we only lose a handful of games a year we're going to crush you guys like a bug and just uh, sort of be very cocky and arrogant about it. What he shared with me, Amy, was exactly the opposite insofar as he said, the reason it's so tough to be a warrior is every game we play for our opponent, it's the biggest game, regular season game of the year for them because they're playing us. Yeah. And, and we can't sustain the level of intensity against them that they're going to bring to us. And he even made a comment. He didn't say who it was, but he said, yeah, uh, a week or so ago we played a team and this one guy scored 25 points and he hasn't had a basket all year. <laughs> and so I guess my point in sharing that with you is he was sharing with me the mental disadvantage they feel being the greatest team in the NBA. Yeah, that's interesting. And again, it's another example of saying, you know, if you become too complacent and thinking that you've already arrived, thinking that you're good enough, that's where the real danger comes in because you let your foot up off the gas and you don't put in as much effort and then other people will get ahead of you. Yeah, that, that one makes a lot of sense. And then also you talk about vulnerability as a weakness. And, and I'm almost wondering if vulnerability is about to become the new authenticity, you know, the thing that everybody right. you know 
or the new grateful, you know, the thing that everybody now says they are, but most of them are full of shit in my opinion. <laughs> it's, it's the people who tell you how authentic they are that are the most full of shit. But I, I digress. So vulnerability <laughs> has become a very, very big topic. And, and, and so um, how do you think about vulnerability and, and what do you think is important for people to get here? You know, it's really just about saying you don't have to have all the answers and that it's okay to admit your weaknesses sometimes. And so an example of really being vulnerable might be calling your friend when you're having a bad day and say, gosh, I really need help or I just need somebody to listen to me. I need some emotional support or I'm really struggling. I made a mistake. I messed up. Or having those conversations with your partner. So often we tend to um, bury things under the rug. We ignore problems. We don't have those tough conversations. Because it's hard to say my feelings were hurt. Instead, we often lash out in anger or we keep our game faces on no matter what. So even when we're going through tough times, we do the whole, I'm doing well. How are you? Um, and, you know, try to make our lives seem like they're perfect. We do this on social media all the time. And as you brought up, sort of vulnerability being the new buzzword these days, you know, you see some posts sometimes where people talk about um, their lives, but you there's something about it that makes you question whether they're really being vulnerable or if they're just trying to jump on the vulnerability bandwagon by saying, you know, I have these things going on in life and their pictures are still sort of airbrushed and their commentary looks like it was probably edited professionally. And, uh, and rather than really allow themselves to be vulnerable, um, you know, they're just trying to come across as though they are, which I think is really dangerous too, because to really be vulnerable, you have to let people know that, that you struggle with things and that you're not doing okay sometimes. And it's not something that we should necessarily be announcing on social media all the time, but sometimes it's just a conversation, a private conversation between you and a loved one. Yeah. Amen. Hallelujah. The other big question I have for you, uh, and I've sort of thought about this a lot. It's sort of maybe, well, I'll just, I'll just ask you the question. Then you'll, then you'll tell me, um, how do I be a better man? for women in general and for the women in my life? Oh, that's a great question. I think one is just acknowledging uh, some of the experiences that women have that are different than men. So whether it be the pressures that women feel, the societal issues, or as we talked about the Me Too movement, just recognizing that women have different experiences and that when women talk about those things, it's not marginalizing men's experiences. I mean, I know men deal with toxic masculinity and they deal with lots of other problems as well but you know every once in a while when I talk about the women's book I'll have a man say well why are you implying it's easy for men and boys have it tougher than girls do I'm not trying to get into a contest about who has the roughest life or who has the the worst experiences but like I think by just Monty Python you know right. 40 miles to snow well at least you had boots and you know and it was uphill both ways and yeah it sort of gets dumb right right I had somebody on Twitter the other day who was trying to engage me in one of those arguments about you know I was ignoring how tough life was for his boys in school and we weren't talking about that um so, you know, I think for men to just acknowledge that, yeah, women have different experiences to try to learn about them, to educate yourself and for for dads who are raising kids to raise both sons and daughters with more knowledge and more and educate them about basics, emotional skills, social skills. And, uh, you know, I think for all the men who have read my book, kudos to you. Uh, I had one man who said, I'm really embarrassed to read it in a coffee shop because I don't know what people will think if I'm reading a book that says 13 things really strong women don't do. But I've had so many other men who say, you know, I, I feel better about reading this book. So much of it applied to my own life, but it gave me insight into women. So I think just learning more about each other um, is the first step in the right direction. Yeah, I think your book uh, for me was... Uh... On that, on this dimension, I do you remember when um, I forget his name now? The guy who wrote "Men Are from Mars, Women Are from Venus." Yeah, yeah. So I remember when that book came out, and I remember reading it, and it was just you know I was in my twenties at the time and uh, fairly newly married, and I'm reading this thing, and my mind is blowing up because I'm like, well, holy fuck, this is like, you know, this it was a lot of news for me. <laughs> And so I think your book is like that in, in that um, it's so easy to forget that the perspectives are very different. 
right? Yeah, I did right. not expect her to see everything the way I do. She doesn't. She's different, man. That's why you love her. <laughs> right. And I, you know, and I think that that's key and it's okay to recognize, you know, just physical differences, emotional differences. And as a culture, the way that we have been raised a little bit differently than men have and how that affects us. Yeah. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap, Amy? I think, you know, one of my favorite things sort of from the book and something I've gotten a lot of feedback from is the last chapter about not downplaying your success. And the part about that one in particular is compliments, how difficult it is for women to accept compliments and how quick we are to say, no, it was nothing because we minimize it or we offer a quick compliment back like no you're amazing and so one of the things I've encouraged women to do is when you get a genuine compliment from somebody just say thank you and it for a lot of us it feels really uncomfortable but it's an easy way to just start saying okay I'm going to own my success yeah and and you think guys take compliments better than gals do um, you know, from the from the research, there's a lot of info on how difficult it is for women to accept compliments, especially when it's the compliment is given from another woman because we don't want to sound arrogant. But plenty of men do the same thing. When somebody says nice shirt, you say, oh, this old thing or, you know, I got it yeah. for ten dollars ten years ago. Just it's just uncomfortable because we don't want to come across as narcissistic. So I think for everybody to just practice just saying thank you when you get a compliment. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It's very simple and and acknowledge it. And sometimes, you know, sometimes go with it. It's like, hey, um, you know, for example, we had um, Dr. Henry Mintzberg on the podcast recently. Well, he, amongst many things, has over 20 honorary degrees and he uh, he's, a, he's a business professor in Canada and he um, he got the Canadian um Shit, what's it called? I think it's called Medal of Honor. No, Order of Canada. That's what it's called, Order of Canada, mm -hmm. which is the equivalent of the Medal of, uh, Freedom, uh, Medal of Freedom in, in America. It's the highest sort of acknowledgement for a non-military uh, citizen in the country. And, uh, you know, when you win that, you can own that you did some awesome shit in your life. You know, that one, you get right, that one. <laughs> right, exactly. My other favorite example of this is, uh, you know, the greatest hockey player of uh, all time, of course, is Wayne Gretzky. And the reason you know he's the greatest hockey player of all time, did you know what his nickname was, Amy? No. His nickname was The Great One. Okay, then. <laughs> That's what his nickname is, The Great One. And so if your nickname is The Great One, you get to own that you're The Great One. <laughs> Just right. Just say thank you. <laughs> Just say thank you. Yeah, it doesn't make you... Uh, what's, what's the opposite of humble? Arrogant, maybe? I think arrogant, yeah. Yeah, so we all try to be humble, but downplay downplay it. So just get it and, and say thank you. Right. You can just own your achievement without bragging about it, but just know it's okay to own the accomplishments. Put in the, the hard work that you put in to get where you are that you don't serve anybody well if you say, oh, it was nothing. No, you put in a lot of hard work. Acknowledge it. Yeah, and look uh, – Hopefully, I'm not considered a bragger, but I will brag sometimes. You know, I, I, I have an expression that I use, Amy. I'll say, well, with all due modesty, my book was number one on day one. It came out, right? Like, <laughs> right, right. saying, right? Yep. And so my point is there's sort of uh, puffery that can be unattractive, but in the right context, delivered the right way. Um, you know, like Muhammad Ali is probably the greatest example of all time, Right. You know, he's this he's this massive braggart, but because he's kind of in on the joke with us and he's funny and charming and like you, I want to listen to Muhammad Ali brag for 20 minutes. <laughs> right. We're even saying, you know, your book was number one. Like, that's a fact. You didn't say, gosh, I'm the greatest author in the whole world. But to stick to the facts sometimes. And yeah, this is the, this is the truth. Right. And there's nothing wrong in admitting the truth. <laughs> yeah. And hey, we set a goal and, you know, we got there. And so when I was at a party after the book launch, people say, well, how, how'd it go? And I would tell them. <laughs> and as an author, I know how much work it is to write a book and how much you want to celebrate when it, people actually buy your book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and look, you know as well as I do, number one on Amazon means something. 
absolutely does. Yeah. Now, listen, in, in, with all due uh, transparency, there are 4,332 car- uh, categories. So, you know, you <laughs> pick the right one. In, in some, some it's easier than others, but uh, <laughs> number one is still number one. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to touch on, Amy? Just, you know, I think thanks again for having me on your show and giving me the opportunity to talk more about mental strength. I just think you're fantastic. I think this work is so, so, so important. Um, I think you're uh, shining a light in a great place. Your personal story, you know, had me at the beginning, you know, the, the first time I saw your TED Talk, which is how I discovered you. And um, I've told you this before, but I'll tell you, I am so happy for your success. And uh, man, have you earned it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I would love to ca- have you back. What are we doing next, Amy? What's Great the next question. One? Do we know? I don't know yet. I'm sort of at the moment just out there marketing this one and talking about about women for now. But I'm sort of open to figuring out what, what is going to be next. I have an idea for you. Okay. The 13 things mentally strong boat owners don't do. <laughs> I would love to write that book. <laughs> Right, you sort of write a bit of a comedy one next. <laughs> that would be quite fun. <laughs> Maybe a silly one, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, you could have one for pets. You know, dog owners don't do, and um, yeah. But that may not be a direction you want to go. I don't. <laughs> may not, but it's still fun. I get a lot of those jokes from people that know me and know my work. Is they'll say, you know what, you know, mentally strong dog owners don't do, and I'll hear something, and you know, so it's fun to, to be able to have some humor with it as well, because it is a serious subject. But... Hey, maybe, I was going to tell you, I really love your Instagram. You put good shit in there. I'm trying to learn Oh, thank you. Because I think I suck pretty much at social media. But maybe that's a thing to do on Instagram, is ask people to send you some funny 13 things every once in a while. Maybe for April. Oh, you're right. That... Something. You could do some funny ones, or I don't know. That'd be a fun thing to play with your, your followers and, and friends on social media with. I think so, too. I did it on Twitter once, and some people, it was about Christmas, or I think, or maybe it was Thanksgiving, something about holidays and what mentally strong people don't do over the holidays. And some people sent me some hilarious ones. But every once in a while, you get somebody who was really serious, and they'd be offended, or they'd jump in and say, why did you say that? And I'd have to explain to them, no, this is just tongue-in-cheek. Like, we're just joking here. But uh, no, I think that's it. the Christmas tree down in the house. Exactly. (laughs) So it could be a good one for Instagram. Thanks for the idea. Yeah, well. You do have a good Instagram and you have lots of folks there with you. So I don't know, maybe you could, you could, uh, do, do my silly idea there. All right, right, Amy, thank you so much. And, um, I hope you'll come back. Thank you. I hope to see you again soon. Keep doing legendary work, my friend. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Amy Morin. Um, and, uh, you know, now you know why I like her so much. If you haven't checked out, um, the prior episode she's been with us on, uh, why not go to lockhead.com and in the search bar, just type in her name, Amy Morin, and her episodes will pop up. Now, our friends at NetSuite are the number one cloud ERP vendor on the planet, and they want to help you turbocharge your growth by staying on top of your numbers. In a recent study by SL Associates, it turns out that NetSuite customers reported stunning improvements in key parts of their business. For example, a 10% increase in revenue. And uh, I don't know about you, but increasing revenue seems to be a top priority for business leaders around the world. 5% increases in gross margin and an 80% increase in business insights. That's called knowing what's going on. And because NetSuite is in the cloud, you can get up and running fast so that you can know what's going on. Now, as a listener to this podcast, NetSuite is offering you a compelling, compelling offer, um, and that is a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. So go to netsuite.com slash different, and there you'll be able to get set up for a time, and, uh, and then you're going to know, and you're going to know what you need to know to grow. <laughs> Maybe we should write some doc- Dr. Susie things about knowing and growing. I don't know. Anyway, thanks to NetSuite. And uh, most importantly, I want to thank you so much for listening. And um, I'd like to uh, also let you know that you can check us out on Facebook, 
facebook.com slash groups slash legends and losers. It's our old URL. Or you can just search in Facebook for Christopher Lockhead Fire Different. You can find me if you want on Instagram and at uh, and Twitter at Lockhead. And if you want to email us, email the podcast at blackhole, all one word, at lockhead.com. All right. We would like to thank the amazing new book by our multi-time friend and guest, uh, uh, multi-time friend and guest, guest and friend, <laughs> the incredible Amy Morin, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. Uh, HarperCollins Instant Classic Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. The amazing nonprofit OneLifeFullyLive.org. Check them out. This is where they help you dream, plan, and live your best life. Snap Sports. Uh, this is how the action sports world makes photo revenue. Check out Snap Sports with a Z or a Z, depending on your uh, you know spiritual beliefs. dot com. That's SnapSports.com. The official coffee of this podcast, or should I say podcast, is Verve Coffee in Santa Cruz, Los, An- Los Angeles. Los Angeles, if you're going to have a podcast, learn how to talk. <laughs> San Francisco, Tokyo, and always on the World Wide Web at VerveCoffee.com. Are you planning a wedding or some other uh, legendary event in Hawaii? Then why not check out my friends at Bell Destination Events at BellDestinationEvents.com in Hawaii. Uh, if you're trying to if you're trying to impact your company in a positive way and create positive change, then check out my friends at the Flourishing Leadership Institute. Lead to flourish, all one word. dot com. Now, do you live in Santa Cruz? Is it time for you to take your fitness to the next level? Uh, maybe it's time you started to train like it matters with my friends at Paradigm Sport. Check them out at paradigmsport.com. Now, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And we must warn you that this oddcast clearly contains nuts and is the sole property of the Logcast Oddcast Network. Um, I also want to tell you, hey, this episode was produced by the incredible Jamie J and edited by Sarah Parrish and Mike D. Show notes by Rowan uh, Nostros and our newsletter by the incredible Karen Onahog. I need to remind you that Steve McQueen is the real Steve McQueen and Adam West is the real Batman. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Uh, Don't stage your own attack just to get publicity. Come on here, people. Listen to their moans. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Oscar Munoz, CEO of United Airlines. Sorry, Oscar. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much, folks. I really appreciate you spending some time with me. Be legendary until we're again, until we are together again. <laughs> Follow your difference.